absolutely wild as Fern Gagne's all-star wrestling goes coast to coast and continent to continent. The greatest wrestlers in the world. He may be an apprentice carpenter, but I guarantee you he is a seasoned ring veteran. I've been hit with bar stools, bar rags, bar maids. I'm talking to you! They're scared that Hulkamania is still running wild. I got a big fat wife and nine kids at home, and I gotta feed them. And take a look at Jesse the body in real life. Open your hand once if you would. You understand? (laughs) This is absolutely unbelievable. Totally, completely out of control. He's coming in over the top. Hey! Look out! Welcome in to AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent number one podcast dedicated to telling the stories and reliving the memories of the best territory in the history of the wrestling business, the American Wrestling Association. You have just seen the best part of the podcast. On most weeks, that's the best part of the podcast. However, you guys are in for a real treat later on today. And I don't mean by bringing in Polish show and Mick Karch because they're here every week. And I suppose I'll unmute you. Well, no, 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 no. Tell me if I'm wrong that the open, everybody loves the open after the open. They're like, we could play the open for an hour and we would do like record numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. Chupik did a, did a great job. He did a hell of a no. job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no question about it. You know, he's not going to get a bump and pay for it, but he did a great job. Yeah. He did it pro bono. Is that what they say? Or a Sonny Bono, perhaps. I, I, I don't know. Are you guys feeling okay today? Because you're being nice. Give Not us a yet. minute. Oh, I figured. Hold on. Oh, you fucking jerk, you pick. There okay. you go. There. there we go. There we go. That's better. Yep. Hey, b- before, we, before we get into... Oh, you got an itchy tube itchy, huh? Yep. <laughs> You like that? There are we. Are we cool now? Are we cool now? Now that we got, we're it? always cool, Chris. I love it. I love it. Hey, at the end of the day, we're in the toy box of life, right? Like this is. <laughs> it's an hour of fun going back and forth, talking about professional wrestling with two of my friends. I would never tell this to them, but they're my friends, and I love them dearly. So mm. today. Guys, we've got a really cool guest. I'm not going to say any more because, Mick, I'm going to let you do the introduction. Uh, We do have a little bit of business to take care of 7th Avenue Pizza, uh, best frozen pizza on the market. Great thing about 7th Avenue Pizza, you guys, is it doesn't even it doesn't even taste frozen. That's the great stuff. You put it in your oven and it's like you're getting fresh food there. And uh, I said my name, you know, Tubbs by birth, Tubby by choice, and that's Body by Pizza. So no other, no better pizza than 7th Avenue pizza. Also, now that it's getting a, a little cool outside, if you want to rep the AWA Unleashed Army, go ahead and do that by going to us, uh, Soda Stick, sodastickco.com or sodastick.com. Go to uh, uh, AWA Unleashed up in the uh, search bar. You go to the Unleashed and you get yourself a, a hoodie, a personalized hoodie. You can get your name right there in the neckline. You get 15% off if you use the promo code UNLEASHED. So a great thing to have as we're getting into the cooler uh, weather. One thing about it, too, guys, if you're going to get it, size up because they do run a little bit small. And if you do, let us know. Send us an email, AWA Unleashed uh, Podcast 
at gmail.com or you know let us know on any one of our social media platforms that you get it because then you know we can get you on the podcast we, we can you know get a picture of you wearing your your awa unleashed swag and I, I think it's i think it's great so we got a lot of really cool things coming up i did i did i hit all the did i hit all the good stuff guys you did you uh you put everything over as they say and let's get it over even more and hit that subscribe button on oh, YouTube. Yes. yes. The one thing I have not done is shill for YouTube. Please, people. Please. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Begging you. Please hit that subscribe button. Like, rate, review. It really helps the algorithm wherever you get your podcast. You know, whatever platform. YouTube is, uh, is usually the best. Um, now, before we get into our guest, Joe and Mick... One thing we do on this podcast is we do not lie. And you guys got called out on some misinformation, some fake news, alternative facts that you put out there. We are not fake news. You get your fake news somewhere else. We are not fake news. Hey, hey news. all right. You guys messed up. You got called on it. So, hey, let, let's start here. Oh. We are not news. We are not the AWA Almanac. We are three guys who are talking about what we what we remember or maybe what we think we remember. And let's let's face it. Let's admit it we're talking 30, 40, sometimes 50 years ago. Shit, I can't remember the last time I took a piss, let alone Something happens too many years ago. Having said that, Jesus, we've got standards, Joe. There's a line. It's a line. You're, you're, no, you're, no, no. Standards went out the window when you guys asked me to be a co-host about it. That's for me. So yeah. all bets are off. But what we need to bring up and talk about last week, we had talked about Russ Francis's first match. I brought up. I remember him being on TV, and there's a big upset and. And it was like, holy shit moment for me. And I believe, Mick, uh, you thought that it was Nick Bockwinkle that it happened to. And apparently um, we had our memories wrong. So go ahead and tell us, Mike. I mean, Mick. Jerry, I'll get right into it. Um, the interesting thing about it is you would, you would figure that the president of the Bockwinkle Brigade would know his Nick Bockwinkle facts. Uh, but he didn't. And we were attributing Russ Francis uh, to debuting by pinning Nick Bockwinkle on All-Star Wrestling. Well, not only wasn't it Russ Francis, it was his brother Billy. And Billy and Nick actually wrestled to a draw. So the late Russ Francis did not upset Nick Bockwinkle in his debut. Uh, it was Billy Francis. And again, uh, you know, Bockwinkle Brigade president for 20-some years, knows Nick's career inside and out, and the guy fucked up. So, you know, it is. You, you fucked know. up. You fucked up. You oh, fucked up. You fucked up. Let's not let's not do that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you no, fucked no. up. Yes, yes, yes. We gotta yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were, we're a week late on that stuff. Yeah. Okay. But so anyway, so uh, yeah. yes, thank you for bringing that to our attention. And yes, when when you do so, 
and uh, we're called on something and we got a date wrong or a fact wrong or what have you, we'll acknowledge it and we appreciate it. And thanks for paying attention. That's the bottom line. You cared enough to call us on it yeah. and, and never do it again. Please. Yeah. I love it personally. I love it when you guys mess up because then I can sit here and, I mean, it never happens. I mean, hypothetically saying I would love it. You know what? I don't even you know, let, back up. Elapsed time. Do we have to, <laughs> 57 minutes. <laughs> do we have to restart? You know what? With that being said, I'm going to bounce out for a bit. Mick, I'm going to let you introduce our guest because this is one we've been, we've been waiting for for a while, and I'm glad that we were finally able to make it work. And this has also been one that people have been requesting too. So yes. let's not get astray. Like we've had people that have been asking for this individual. And I'm glad we were finally able to get him on. Back in the day when wrestling was wrestling and it wasn't uh, sports entertainment and it wasn't uh, six main event matches uh, every Monday night or every Wednesday night, uh, there was a thing called uh, all-star wrestling. And you had guys that came in to town uh, sometimes from Chicago, sometimes from Milwaukee, sometimes from Bloomington, Minnesota, and they would make the stars look good on television, and that was their job. So they were called jobbers or, you know, enhancement talent, whatever you want to call them. Uh, probably the most famous at the time were Kenny J and George Gadaski. Uh, Tom Rocky Stone was up there, but this gentleman that we're going to bring on right now, he was every bit as much of a regular uh, on the AWA network back in the day. And I didn't realize that he had been in the AWA for about 10 years. So welcome aboard, Chris Curtis. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, guys. How you doing? Thanks a lot for having me. It's great. We, we are absolutely delighted to have you here, Chris. You know, the last time we actually spoke directly was at the AWA reunion and that's going on a year already. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, more than enough time to get you on the air. And it's, it's just a pleasure. And we're going to have some fun here. So uh, let, let's get right to it. I don't know who question number one. I think, Joe, you've got question number one. No, I've got number one. I don't care. Look at the yes, sheet. You are number one, Chris. Go you ahead. Certainly are. <laughs> Thanks, you know Joe. What? Well, I'm you know, I'm, you know, hold on. Before we get into it, we got two Chris's. Mm -hmm. So for today, we're going Tubbs and Chris for Chris Curtis. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, it we're works. yeah, it works. Go ahead, Tubbs. Or the job, man. That'll work too. I have no problem with that. I'm a director. You got to set those ground rules. Go for it, Tubbs. Wow. Okay. That's it. All right. So I, I want to ask you, Chris. What first got you interested in the business? Because I'm fascinated by like the, the history and, and kind of like what drew you into it. Did you grow up a wrestling fan? Is that kind of how this thing started? It was um, when I was like nine years old. Um, this is back in 66, 1966. And <clears throat> I was out in the backyard throwing a, a rubber ball to my brother and um I threw it back to him and he ducked. I hit my sister in the forehead and I started laughing. My mom sent me in the house. This is in the middle of summer. <clears throat> so what's there to do? So I turned the TV on and boom, all-star wrestling is on. And I'm watching this and it's like, what is this? And the first guys that I remember that were on there were Killer Kowalski, 
Mad Dog Vashon, uh, Larry Hennig, and Harley Race, and I was like mesmerized. And every week, um, I would watch it without fail. And um, and then um, my parents, there was a there was a uh, an interview when um, Kobayashi was going to go against uh, the Crusher, and the Crusher came out with a garbage can, and he said he's going to send Kobayashi back to Japan in this garbage can. My mom walked in the living room. She goes, that's it. No more of this. There's, I'm not going to listen to any of that kind of talk in the house. So it's like, what am I going to do? Well, there happened to be a, 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 a department store a couple blocks away. So what I did was I went there every Saturday night at five o'clock, sat in front of the TVs, and I watched wrestling for an hour, and I came back home, and I did that probably for three or four years. And that's how I was hooked. And later, um, I was going to a technical school in Milwaukee, and I wanted to work for a, uh, a wrestling magazine to take pictures. And I was going to school for photography, and um, I had a little um, disagreement on a grade with one of the instructors, and I told him what he could do with his class. And... I quit the I quit the program, but I um, I went to a guy who was running some outlaw shows here, and um, I said I'll take pictures for you, but he said he couldn't pay me. He started training me. Long story short, Tom Stone got involved. He started training me, and probably five days a week, um, three hours a day, I would take two buses to get to this little pool hall that had a ring in it. And that's where I started training. And truthfully, Tom Stone was instrumental in me getting in, getting into wrestling. And that's, that's how I got into it. And my first match um, up in Minneapolis was Stone and I against the high flyers. And it was like, I thought this is just the greatest thing in the world, you know? And, and the craziest part was, when you're up in the up in channel 11 you go upstairs and uh, yeah nice picture you go upstairs and all the guys are together it's like wow and they're going over finishes and then and you know the biggest secret in the world is the kayfabe at the time you don't tell the audience what's going on and and it was just like it was a whole new world and then when i got to meet Vern Gagne it was like meeting the president it was like, holy cow, I, I hit the big time. And that's how I felt. And, you know, I, the AWA, I wrestled in other territories and organizations, but the AWA was always my favorite. Chris, I got to tell you, I absolutely loved hearing that story of how you got in and kind of a natural born heel there. You hit the sister and, and started laughing about it. <laughs> so you were kind of setting the table early on there. But honest to God, to hear you talking about those memories. And then, of course, I'm envisioning this at the studio, going up there and like a kid in a candy store. You know, you see all the uh, all the heroes and all the legends, kind of the way I felt when I went to Cauliflower Alley uh, mm -hmm. the first time. But uh, that, that that is just great. So I am really looking forward to uh to hearing uh you know some of the things that you've got to say today mm -hmm. one thing i wanted to ask you you know we always we're kind of a proponent of robinsdale minnesota on the <laughs> podcast with all the guys all the stars that came out of robinsdale 
But then I'm looking and I'm thinking to myself before, you know, as we're kind of researching this podcast, the Milwaukee area, in and around Milwaukee, and I guess going into Chicago when Angel Rivera and guys would come in, you there was it was kind of like enhancement land or or Jobberville in Milwaukee because so many guys came in from that territory to work the AWA TV. So question is, toss some names out there, and and we're looking at a picture right now. I know this was a a reunion, mm -hmm. and I know some of the guys. Can you can you explain who you got in the in the photograph there? Sure. Well, the guy, the big guy to the right of me was uh, his his name is Kenny Kasperzak, but he wrestled as Spike Jones. Wow. And then behind us is Herman Schaefer. Oh. And then next to me is Tom Stone. And then next to to Tom is Ned Wicker. He did a little bit up in 79. He was up there. We teamed up a few times against like Olsonowski and Paul Ellering and, and wow. against the Flyers. And then uh, the, the guy to the left of, of Ned, um, his name is uh, Math, Brother Matthew. He was kind of like a – he was a manager here at, at one of the independents um, where I actually cut my teeth and really learned a lot because – it was kind of like a training ground where we could learn how to work. And and then when we went up to TV, we were a little more prepared. Because if you went up to do TV for Vern and you had no clue, that was it. So those are those are uh, some of the guys that um, – and, you know, Herman and Spike, they've had some real medical issues and stuff. and, and uh, But, yeah, Milwaukee, I mean, you go back to the early 70s and – you know, the guys that they had, you know, Cesar Paban and Armando Rodriguez and Peter Lee and, and Dick Reynolds. And then oh. it goes on and on. And it's just, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was it was awesome with with a lot of the guys. And Bill Crouch, I think, used to used to come up, I think, from Milwaukee, too. And um, so it was Milwaukee was really good. And Wally used to call a lot, you know, when he needed us. And it was either, you know, us. Chicago or the Winnipeg guys would come. I think every three weeks we would come, you know, and we would do one tape. We'd leave at six o'clock in the morning from Milwaukee. We'd get up there like around noon. We'd do one tape. They'd pay us like $85. And we thought this was the greatest thing. We'd go cash our checks at a liquor store, go eat, and then we'd come back and we get back at like 10 o'clock at night. But it was just it was just the greatest thing in the world because man, we thought we were we were there. We were it being on all-star wrestling. So let me kind of, you know, when you're growing up and you're mentioning all these guys, was there like one person that you considered your guy, like one individual that you were the, like an Uber fan for? Cause we hear these stories about, I was, you know, I, I was a, a fan of, you know, Crusher. I was a fan of Matt. Was there one person out there and you're like, this is, this is my ride or die guy. As far as like the stars go, yeah, yeah, or I mean anybody that you just you enjoy yeah. watching and, and were a fan of. Well, I'll tell you what, um, the 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 two guys that really um, influenced me to get into wrestling were Bobby Heenan and Ray Stevens, and um, just the bumps that they took and how they worked the crowd, and I think 
Um, even before that, what really wanted, what really made me want to get into wrestling was in Milwaukee. And I think <clears throat> Mick would probably know, maybe Joe too, but back in 73, uh, Rhodes and Murdoch, Vern turned them babyface every once in a while. Yeah. And they wrestled Bachwinkle and Stevens for the for the title at the arena in Milwaukee. And the main event that night was Wahoo and Superstar Graham in a strap match. But <clears throat> when Bachwinkle and, and Stevens were getting their heat, on Murdoch. Murdoch finally tagged in the second fall because they had lost the first one. When Dusty came in and started cleaning house and, and those guys just flew, it's like, this is what I wanted to do. And it was like, just the way the crowd reacted. And I didn't want to be the baby face. I wanted to be the heel and, you know, sell my ass off for him and fly. And my, my whole thing when I was wrestling was to make the people happy that I was getting my butt kicked. It, it sounds really weird, but I'll tell you what, that's what it was all about. And I would have done it for free because I just love to perform and send them home happy. I, yeah, I, I can kind of get that because I would think about it. If you're in that situation, like the more emotion you convey of getting beat up, like the mm -hmm. happier the people are going to be. So really it's like, you control their level of enjoyment in a way. You do. And and even when, if a heel won, just when a baby face, if they could just make a big comeback and then at the end, miss a drop kick, um, get caught with, you know, you know, a screw real quick, something like that, the trunks, yeah. one, two, three, just for that moment that, that you could make that crowd happy and you're selling your ass off for them and you know just for that minute that's what it's all about and making them believe that you know um you're getting killed or you know whatever and um it, it's just that's what it is um and that's why I love the business so much, just to go out there, you know, and especially with a house show like that, when we would we'd get those, I would just do everything that I could to to send them, you know, I, I work the openers a lot, but just to send them to the next match happy and they can call me whatever they want, but that's what it was all about. You know, that that is, uh, again, I'm like, you know, just ecstatic that we got you on the show because these are the memories that I have. And for me, they're the glory days of the AWA. And you're talking about taking the people on that roller coaster ride, uh, the psychology of the business. You know, you mentioned the guy, the baby face, especially on television, like a Kenny J or, you know, whoever it might be. Damn it, they're so close to, you know, pinning Bachwinkle and, and they run into a knee in the corner and that's it. Nick puts him in a pile driver and, you know, like poor Jake Milliman pushed his Jake's head even farther down into his neck. Um, those were such great days. And to me, that is such a lost art, Chris, because first of all, there's no squash matches per se anymore in wrestling. Uh, everything is boom, 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 main event. Everybody's got to get their spots in and what have you. But to be able to take the people on that ride and have the fans have that emotional connection. We talked mm -hmm. on this podcast. That's not, that's not there anymore. In, in modern day wrestling. No, it's not. And, um, you know, and that's, 
that's the sad part because that's what drew me to the business way back then. It it just um just to watch the people's reaction. You know, I remember one time Wally called me when Dino Bravo first came into the territory in 79, Wally called and said, Hey, can you get up to, to, um, to St. Paul? I need you in St. Paul tonight. And, uh, I said, okay. So I flew up and they had a battle Royal that night too. And Wally said, all I need is one minute with Dino. And we worked it. Um, I attacked him, um, got him in the corner, <clears throat> boom, boom, nailed him a few times. He turned me around, turnbuckled me, gave me a big backdrop, threw me in, gave me a, 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 a um, airplane spin. That was his finish. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, I was selling the heck out of it. I'd get up and I'd fall, and, you know, and probably fell through the ropes. And after that, and <clears throat> people were, because you know, they were going to build a big program with him in Blackwell. And just whatever they wanted, I don't care if it was 30 seconds whatever they needed. I went out there and I gave everything that I could to make those guys look good. And, um, you know, I know Vern was watching real close and Wally was watching real close. And Greg would watch real close. And if you went out there um, and just put those guys over and made them happy and made the fans happy, um, you know, because – you know, I wore all black. They, you know, they they hated me, which was cool because the more they disliked me, the better it was. I knew I was doing my job. Um, you know, if you didn't get a reaction, that was pretty tough. But for the most part, yeah. So, so Chris, I have the utmost respect for anybody that wants to walk into a wrestling ring, take the bumps. Uh, in a singlet or what amounts to a tight pair of underwear. Uh, and so I, I asked this question out of complete respect. I have to assume that when you got into the business from all of your years growing up, watching it, that you could see yourself be that main eventer, you know, to go against a, a Vern Gagne or a Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA championship. That did not happen in the AWA. When did you know or when were you resigned to the fact that you're going to be that enhancement talent and still be able to fulfill your dream of being inside that squared circle and on television? Right away. You know, I accepted my role, and that's what I wanted. I had no problem doing it. You know, it's it's kind of like um, you have, like in a movie or a TV show, you have like the main character, the the big star, <clears throat> then you have the supporting cast. I considered myself one of the supporting cast, and you need a supporting cast to put the big names over. It, it just that's the way it works. They just can't do it by themselves. So I had no problem going out there. I don't care if it was a minute. I don't care if it was two minutes. I don't care, you know, whatever they needed. Because, number one, this stuff, it was not real. It was all predetermined. And, 
you did everything you could to make that audience believe what you were doing was real because you were work playing on their emotions and you wanted to, um, my goal all the time was to make them go home happy. Now I got a chance to wrestle Nick on TV and I got a chance to, you know, when he would, when he had the strap, um, Martel, when he had the strap, Stan Hansen, when he had the strap, um, so I got to wrestle my world champions and, you know, they gave me, um, you know, part of the match. And then at the end, whatever, then they, they stopped me. And that's, I had no problem, um, never wrestling for the title. It would have been, it would have been really neat because, you know, I, I could have done it if I had to go 30 minutes or, or whatever. I don't know if I could have went, you know, a 60 minute Broadway, but there's ways you could do it. You just have to slower your pace and, and everything. But I had no problem. I knew right away what I was going to be. And, um, yeah. So. I got I, I got to say, I just respect your answer 100%. And you're right. Everybody has their role. And you did yours very well. And so for that, I give you the respect and the kudos that you – deserve for that answer chris love oh, i that. appreciate that thank you very much you know uh, chris uh, dr x many times dick buyer has said that guys like you and kenny J and george gadaski uh, he gives you all the credit in the world or he did god bless his soul he would say these are the carpenters of the business without them there is no dr x there is no main event in in the offing for Dick Byer. And he said, a lot of times I was in the ring with somebody who really was a lot better than I was, but he made me look good. And the fact that, that you knew early on, this was your role and you accept, you embraced it actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is, that is so refreshing because, you know, I, I fast forward to the modern day, pro wrestling. And I'm going to ask you a question about that in, in just a second. But so many guys now, even on an independent level, they don't get it. You know, if, if they're not the main event, if they're not, you know, getting their push, if they're, they, they can't accept it. Everybody's got to be a star. And to hear you talk about, you know, this is what I was, this is what I was expected to do. And I still went out and gave 150% that is so refreshing and so, so phenomenal. And I, I really appreciate it, which brings me to my next question. When you worked so hard back then to make people believe, even if it was two minutes, three minutes, 10 minutes, and now you're in a modern era where there's no kayfabe, the, you know, the bus left the station a long time ago. How do you personally, as you know, as a, a veteran of the business, somebody who did his job and did it extremely well, how do you feel or how did you feel when kayfabe was broken? Um, you know, the, it was, it was kind of like Vince McMahon sold the soul of the devil for the money, you know, and then Eddie Mansfield, um, when he did that little deal on 2020 with Stossel, um, it, it just, uh, you know, you work all all those years. That's that's what sold tickets. Um, 
you know, and you have a couple of guys that just, you know, with Mansfield when he went, you know, he did a blade job on TV and, and, uh, but the funny thing is, is that, and Jesse, Jesse made a point about that. Jesse Ventura, he said, when he, when he did that, it didn't affect anything because people couldn't believe that we would be so stupid to go and cut our foreheads. Right. Like, why would you do something like this? So it was like almost unfathomable for them to believe that we would do that. And then with Vince, it was, you know, not paying money to the state athletic commissions, which were a joke anyway. Um, yep. And it just, you know, it, it was all for the buck. And, and it just, um, you know, back then it didn't affect too much, you know, the business, but still you just, it's like the magician. If, if he said, okay, this is how we do our tricks. This, he exposed everything. And, um, so I was just, I, I was not happy about it. And, um, you know, one other thing too, um, before, um, as far as like, you know, all the, I mean, they call squash matches on TV and all the jobbers going against the main event guys way back then. What people don't realize is that if you have main event matches on TV all the time, why would you want to go to the auditorium exactly. or to buy tickets? Um, that's what, that's what we're there for because you're making these guys look like supermen and, um, so you're going to get the top heel against the top baby face and then the next maybe three or four, and then you bring them to town and that's why people bought tickets and, and people need to know that it, it, they go, did you ever win? No. If I, if I was zero and a thousand, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is that those guys that were making them look good, are bringing them to the auditorium and the better you did to make them look good. I, you, you, you can't work for Vern Gagne for 10 years. If you sucked, it's all there is to it. If you didn't know how to wrestle and you were the shits, Vern would have got rid of you real quick, but I lasted 10 years and, and his son, I wrestled him more than anybody over those 10 years. And if I could wrestle Greg, you know, all those years, but I guess I'm off the beaten track, but I just wanted to, just wanted to mention that, but yes, when they, when they expose the business, um, it's like, thanks a lot guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Well, I, and I like how you said, Chris, where it's like your job is to create the interest to see these two stars fight each other because ultimately like you're right. Like everything is the same now. It's always, you know, guy one versus guy two versus guy one versus guy two. There's nothing special about kind of the building up to what you want to see and getting fans like emotionally invested kind of to circle it back around. I think that's a great answer. Cause I can remember when I was a kid, you know, in the mid eighties, like they were still doing that. It didn't last too much longer, but I remember I'd, yeah, I'd watch these matches and I'm like, okay, this guy's really good versus this guy who's really good the only way you can see it is if you go see it in person, because you're not going to get it on TV. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's, it was the art of keeping the audience guessing up until the very end. And it's like, you know, keeping them on the edge of their seats on what, what's going to happen. 
nowadays it's like, you know, if you don't like suplex a guy off the rafters, you know, or send him through, you know, tables and set him on fire and, and whatever, um, cause it's all pretty much the same now clotheslining each other and, you know, throwing them over the top rope into the fourth row, you know, back then there, it, it was resting. It was just keeping you guessing. And, and even when I was a kid and in high school, when I go to the matches, you know, I was just like in awe, just like, what is going to happen when you think that the baby face is going to pull it out. And then right at the very end, there's either interference or, um, and it's just, that's why so many people, including me, I loved it. it and, and even when I was in the business, when I could see something happening and in a good finish, I, I still truly, truly enjoyed watching it because I learned so much from these guys. You know, it's uh, you brought up an interesting point, uh, Chris, about uh, Vince McMahon and about Eddie Mansfield and the breaking of kayfabe. And I just want to run this past you, too, before we go on to something else. In the case of Vince McMahon, yeah, it was to make the buck. He wanted to save, you know, the, the, the tax money or, you know, whatever it was. So he said we're entertainment. In Eddie Mansfield's case, I never understood this. If they had a problem with a promoter, Eddie Mansfield and Jim Wilson, you alluded to and, and drew the comparison to the magician opening up, you know, the, the can of worms and, and letting everybody know the secrets. If you're in the business and you're in Eddie Mansfield, why in the world would you sell your, your brotherhood, your peers down the tubes, because you have a, an issue with a particular promoter. I never understood that, and I'd like to get your take on it. Well, his beef was um, because he wasn't getting very good payoffs, according to him. Well, you know what? When he was in Kansas City, you didn't pay very good. I mean, I worked for Geigel for TV, but, you know, when in Stone worked in Kansas City and, and Mike Richards and, you know, when you're doing mm, six matches a week and you're traveling a couple thousand miles and you're making 250 a week, you know, that's, <laughs> you're not going to get paid much. You, you already know this is what's going to happen. When he was in Memphis, I guess Mansfield was in Memphis. He didn't get paid very much when he was in uh, California. I think he's worked in Los Angeles, but he worked in different areas. But the problem is with him, he was he was only two hundred pounds. They're not going to make him a main eventer. I mean, he may have worked some matches, you know, up there. He was a good worker, but you know, that's as part of it. You're going to get, you know, the promoter is going to pay you what what they're going to pay you, and you can either go talk to him. And the promoter just said, well, you know, accept it or, you know, hit the road, Joe. And, uh, you know, not you, Joe, but uh, but you know what I mean? It's kind of like take it or leave it. And so uh, apparently he was just so disgruntled um, what he was getting paid. But you kind of knew when you were, you know, in the territory what what you were getting. And that was that. So unless, you know, in Kansas City, if you weren't a Harley race or or um, Memphis, if you were, weren't Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, you weren't going to make the top bucks, you know. And then if, and if you're on a card with, like, 
eight matches, you're not going to make squat. You know, it's kind of like working for the Sheik. You'd have nine matches on a card. Well, the guy in the bottom is probably going to make $40 working at the Kobo. Right. So it, it is what it is. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that. And I, I don't recall what the upshot was once Mansfield went on the air and Jim Wilson. Uh, and I remember Jim Wilson uh, kind of making himself out to be something that he was not. I mean, in terms of, you know, his, his stature in the business. But did promoters continue to book Mansfield immediately in the aftermath of that? I know that they did eventually. But was there fallout? Do you recall? You know, um, you know, I I don't remember. Um, he claims that he got death threats from some guys. Um, you know, I don't think he's going to get killed. But um, if if I would have been him and I would expose the business, there's no way I go to a territory that's got, you know was loaded with shooters, right. because you know a guy you know like uh, Eddie Graham or Vern or Watts. You know those kind of guys um, because it, you know they. You know, I worked for Watson. He had his shooters, and more worked for Eddie Graham. But um, <clears throat> unless he unless he ran, he went to some independent or something like that. But um, I, I guarantee you, if I if I expose the business, <laughs> there's no way, especially because that was still territory days back then, and they really protected those territories. Um, yeah, I. I, I truthfully don't know. I thought he just kind of like was so disgruntled that he quit and, you know. Okay. Let's let's uh, shift gears here a little bit because uh, as it relates to you, you wrestled everybody that was anybody in the AWA. And I know you mentioned other territories, but uh, you mentioned Nick and, and the Flyers and so on and so forth. Two-pronged question for you. Uh, of all those guys that you were working with, was there anybody that you loved working with, your favorite opponents to get in there with, and were there some on the inverse that kind of, you know what, this guy's a little stiff or what have you, I, I would prefer not. I, I mean, I know you went in there and you did your job, but were there some that you just did not look forward to getting in the ring with? As far as uh, probably my favorite guys that I worked with were uh, <clears throat> the Flyers. Um, they were super easy. Um, Steve Olsenowski. Steve was really, really great to work with. Super light. Um, Hogan. I love working with him. He was he took care of you really good for a big guy. Um, and Larry Zabisco. I love working Larry. He... Um, that's because yeah, he, he didn't wrestle until five minutes after the bell rang. Right. But <laughs> I got to work him as I was a baby face. And I'm going to tell you something. He would give me a super big comeback. He would, when I work him, I would always get a really good comeback from him. Um, so we were in, the, the, I think the best memory I had of Larry was um, I worked him in Milwaukee. And remember, they used to he used to call everybody spudheads. And yes. so, um, <laughs> some guy in the audience brought an Idaho potato. Oh, and so the guy was like waving the potato, and he's yelling, he "Goes Curtis here, here!" And so, um, Larry said, "Stop me, and we'll get the potato." 
So I stopped him, jumped out of the ring. I, I went and got the potato, and I was like, kind of like softening up and squishing my hand. And I brought the potato in, and I grabbed him by the hair, and he's going, hit me. And I just held that potato <laughs> up and like, like I'm going to give him a bolo or something. And I just smashed the potato, but I didn't hit him in the head. I smashed the back of my hand, and that potato exploded. And he sold the hell out of it. <clears throat> and uh, the people just went nuts. And then afterwards, he, you know, he pinned me. But I love her. <laughs> he was just, if I had to work babyface, he was just so much fun. He was just so easy. Um, and then um, um, the guy that I was like super scared of, and this is when I was first, when I, after I went up to Minneapolis, was Billy Robinson. Oh. And, um, uh, I had him two out of three falls. Oh, I thought, oh, geez, no. And I was just, I was like, because he liked to, you know, to hurt the newer guys. So I went up to Nick and Ray, and they were kind of like my mentors that you could always go to those guys, and they always had time for you, and and they would talk like, you know, psychology, and you know, do this and do this, and they were just wonderful, wonderful guys, and and. Uh, he said, well, just listen to him, what he says, and, and you'll be okay. So we talked about our match beforehand, and we'll do this and this. And got in the ring with him and <clears throat> got him in the corner. I gave him a few forearms, and he he uh, he called me a, a bad name. And I thought, uh-oh. And I hit him again, and um, I went to beal him, and I bealed him, and he got up. And he just went to work on me. Gave me that backbreaker of his. I thought he was going to half. Then he put me in a Boston Crab. And I thought he was going to break my back. And I gave up right away as soon as he got me in it. And um, it was, uh, we went back. Because between falls, we would go back, you know, behind the curtain. And, and then they'd call us back out again. <clears throat> and then they said, no more. You're done. Um, that, that's the end of the match. And so I went upstairs and I was really ticked. And I told Wally, I said, you know what, Wally, this is bullshit. I didn't come up here for this. Um, and so, uh, Billy didn't even say anything to me and, and, um, um, but Nick came up and he said, you know what, don't quit, come back. You did fine. Um, you're doing good. You're new. And, and he was just, he just initiated you whether you know this or not, you just got initiated. Now, I don't know if Vern gave him the green light or what, but <clears throat> a funny story was a couple months later, I was in Green Bay, and we had a battle royal. It was my first big battle royal in the AWA. And, and when the bell rings, you kind of, like, pair off with somebody. <clears throat> so I'm looking around. Here comes stomping toward me as Mad Dog Vishon. I thought, I looked and I said, <laughs> I just said, oh, shit. And so he comes and he goes, stop. So I get him in the corner and I start choking him and getting my heat. All of a sudden there's a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and guess who's standing there? Billy Robinson. Billy Robinson. And I turn and I go, oh, hell no. What, what did I do to deserve this? I'm a nice guy. Why, why do I have two of the worst killers in this territory? And I, I got the, the Tasmanian devil in front of me, and I got this, you know, 
MMA killer behind me. And he just met me on the cheek and walked away and said, see you later. And I went over to Crusher, and Crusher says, when do you go? I go, now, please. And I'm done. <laughs> so was like, I escaped death that night. But, yeah, it was – and then after I had Billy four years later, and Billy was real cool, and he said uh, – I said, hey, Billy, I got you again tonight. He goes, you want revenge, don't you? And he remembered that. And I said, no, I just wow. want to have a good match. And he gave me a lot of the match. And then at the end, he, he uh, you know, he beat me. So that was that was the only time. And I, other than that, never a problem with anybody else, yeah. That Robinson backbreaker, I'm telling you, and, you know, the way Nick used to take it, I mean, you look at it, and you know, I know Stone has said when Nick wrestled Robinson, it's like, holy shit, is yeah. this a shoot they got going out of here? And it was amazing. Well, yeah, and the biggest thing is is that <clears throat> what makes it so realistic is when he picks you up, what you have to do is when your feet are up in the air, you have to slam your feet onto the mat and make it look like he broke you in half because that helps break the backbreaker. There's another little secret that, you know, you just have to know how to take certain things. And, but that's what, you know, saved you. You, just, you throw your feet on the mat and it kind of arches your back a little bit. Cause otherwise, if you took the full brunt on your back, you know, that you could get hurt. So, yeah. You know, it, it, amazes, it amazes me that you were, you were so scared being caught between the dog and Billy Robinson that you actually willingly gave up that $50,000. Just stayed in there another 45 minutes, Chris. I mean, you know, but I, I, I get it. The, the Billy Robinson stories are, are absolutely legendary. And, and this is the first time that I think we've actually heard something firsthand yeah. about Billy Robinson, because I think that's been a big question for fans. It's like, well, was you know, are these stories true? Did he really, you know, do that to people in the ring? And to get a firsthand account of it, I I feel it validates a lot of the questions that our fans have. Yeah, he, um, I I know he he really protected the, you know the business and um, and I give him a lot of credit. And and you know, I'm going to tell you something. Like later when I did a lot of independent shows. Um, and even later, I learned a lot from Billy as far as like different holds, how to apply them. Um, it just, you know, even though what I, even what I do today, working security, if I had to, I would apply some of those holds if need be for restraining and, and whatever. I mean, Billy, I watched him so much. He's probably the one guy as far as legitimate wrestling that I watched more often than anybody. And, and I, and I, I have to give him all the credit in the world for, you know, learning from him, um, you know, the, the legit stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Great, great stuff, Chris. We appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's name association time. Okay. And uh, Joe and I are going to kind of go back and forth here and mention some of the your peers from back in the day. Uh, just a quick little uh, memory or, you know, uh, uh, opinion or story, whatever. So let's kick it off with Wahoo McDaniel. Tell us about Wahoo. Worked Wahoo in um, Las Vegas. 
Um, again, probably one of the toughest guys. Wahoo was probably in his, I'm going to say maybe his early 50s, something like that. Um, still a tough, tough man. But I went out there and I sold for him. Um, he turnbuckled me. And I and I ran full force into a turn. This is out at the show. I ran so hard I thought I was going to break the the ring post. And I know uh, Lee Marshall was was announcing, and he just like, oh, holy cow, he, you know. But Wahoo, all the respect in the world for him, one of the toughest men, one of the toughest men ever. But he was fine with me, no problem there. Uh, I'm going to throw two tough guys at you. Perfect segue into these two. Stan the Lariat Hansen and one Bruiser Brody. Um, worked Brody in um, St. Louis at the Chase. Very nice. He used to come up and he would say, if I don't see you afterwards, I just want to thank you. Took care of me. As long as you sell for him and make him look good, good guy. I you know, I had no problem with with uh, with Frank uh, Hanson. I worked him. I think it was uh, Stevens Point at the college up there. Um, he uh, his lariat. The secret to taking Stan's lariat is don't. You saw that elbow <laughs> coming up. You start to throw your feet up in the air and you take that bump. And and I. He gave it to me maybe about a third away from the edge of the rope, from um, where I was coming off, said about two-thirds of the ring. And I flew, and I actually hit the other side of the ring with my feet and butt, and I, and I just flew from And I could hear Greg. Greg was helping doing the announcing, and he goes, oh, my God, he almost killed that kid. And uh, <clears throat> But, you know, he was kind of – he was, you know, he would lay him in, but that's okay. You know, thinking about it in retrospect, you know, from years ago, I had no problem with, you know, working guys like, like Stan and, and, and Frank, if they were a little rough, um, you know, it just kind of like got you going. And, and I wish that I would have had a longer match, even a house show match where um, if he was like that, I could kind of like lay him in too, because that's how they liked it. But I, I never had a problem with the guys. They were always they were good to me. All right, Joe. Uh, uh, go ahead, bro. I, I'm looking on the list, and I'm going to throw out the high flyers. You talked about them earlier, but a little more impressions of uh, Jim and Greg. Um, super easy to work. Very light. Greg was super light. Um, boy, I learned so much from 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 him. Um, you know, he just he would he would he liked to wrestle. I like to wrestle. It, it helped me learn more. Um, if he got mad, you know, because you screwed something up, he would tell you. But you know, it was all forgiven. And he, you know, when when he booked himself against me. Um, I worked a couple, I think I worked a show in Rockford one time. Um, you know, we probably went about 15 minutes. It was, he had confidence. He knew that I would be a good opponent. Um, I knew what I was doing. I knew how to work. Um, so I love working Greg Brunzel. I worked a couple of times in tags with, you know, with him and him and Greg and Jim too. 
I uh, when he hit me with the drop kick, um, he did it just right. Um, great guy in the ring, very light, um, made great comebacks. So I I love working both those guys. It was it was well worth it, and and I always look forward to to being in there with them. Well, and it's a feather in your cap too. If you mention you know that that Greg would book him book you against him, that says a lot about you and the confidence that he had in you. So absolutely tip of the hat there, pal. Um, other end of the spectrum, so to speak. I'm going to throw you a little curveball here. Tell me about the erstwhile Jake the Milkman Milliman. <laughs> Jake is um, he was. <laughs> He was quite a character. And I'm going to tell you something. He was probably one of the toughest individuals um, I've ever met. You know, he could, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but he could, he used to do this thing where he'd lie on a bed of nails and then he would have, um, somebody would put like a towel over his stomach with, and then there was a cinder block and they would smash a cinder block, um, with a sledgehammer and he'd get up and you just see like little, little red marks on his back. Didn't, you know, it, it, he didn't like get shish kebobbed or anything. And oh, he was just, he was just like a cult figure. And then when he was, you know, then when we teamed up with Jesse, it was like, I think he, then the rest of the fabulous ones weren't they in yes. a program with them, yes. but you could have probably put Jesse and Jake in as as baby faces because they seem to be more over than the Fabs, and right. you know that I I think Jesse would have been a great baby face with Jake if they, you know, in in wrestling anything could be done, and and I think they would have been a great baby face team. I I I really do. Um, it's just too bad that they um, they didn't push him more. But I, I got to give Jake his kudos. He he did really really good. I had all the respect for him in the world for you know a little guy. He was just uh, he was just a great guy. You know I remember one match on TV, uh, All Star Wrestling TV, and and Jake is wrestling Bockwinkle, and he's got Nick in the corner, and Jake came flying in with some particular move. I don't know what it was. But the poor guy landed right on his head. I mean, pinpoint right on his head. And then, of course, Nick followed up with the pile driver. But I remember Roger Kent saying, why even bother giving Jake Milliman a pile driver? He will do it to himself. <laughs> I, I think that was, the, uh, that was the essence of Jake Milliman. And, uh, God, we love the guy. And I know he's had some health issues over the years. But uh, talk about a cult hero. Yeah, I mean, he went, you know, I mean, Jake with the going landing on his head and with Nick, he probably went from five foot three down to four foot 11. You know, it's like, <laughs> wow, guy wrestle against like, you know, little Tokyo and Cowboy Lane. Uh, Next it. name we have on our list, Chris, is Rick Martell. Um, I wrestled Rick on tv maybe i'm gonna say maybe two or three times very easy nice guy to work with um always always a gentleman um 
just uh, I, I remember wrestling him on TV one time, and he had a feud with Stan Hansen, and <clears throat> I remember Stan came into the ring area, and then Martel jumped. I uh, Martel slammed me and jumped out of the ring, and they started fighting outside the ring. And this is back in '85, and um, uh, Marty Miller counted him out, and the and the next thing he raised my hand and. And uh, people are yelling, new champ, new champ. And I'm raising my hand. I'm putting the belt around my waist. And, oh, my God, it was hilarious. And <clears throat> Greg is all bent out of shape because Hanson was there, you know, working it and everything. But that that was a pretty cool, pretty cool moment. You know, I, you know, and back in the, I think the the 60s and even earlier, they would, you know, if you were counted out, you'd lose the strap. Right. right. It was a non-title match. So, um, but, yeah, it was, Rick was a good guy. I I liked him. Let's talk about the guy that you said was kind of a mentor and always had time for you, uh, Mr. Bockwinkle. Uh, talk about uh, your relationship with Nick and how you uh, how you liked working with him. He was uh, Nick was a little snug, and I remember the first time I worked Nick was back in 1981 on TV, and he was his manager, and um, he would take me over. And then I go for a, you know, I pull him down and go for a head scissors, but he would block it. And when he had me in a headlock, he just said, slow down, you know, because, you know, with TV, you want to speed it up. I mean, this was like the moment of my life. This was like the greatest thing. But he was really good to me. Um, he he said, okay, and, and he didn't hurt me. He just... You know, he sold a little comeback for me, and and then he stopped me and put me in the sleeper. But um, just he was always there if you had a question for him. He never said, um, "Just wait, I'm busy." He was always there um, to help you out, and just just one of the as opposed to his persona on TV, just just the greatest gentleman. I, I always had the the greatest respect for. For him and and uh, and Ray Stevens too, because they were just just the greatest guys. I yeah, I miss them. They were they were great. One one of the nicest guys that uh, I worked with in the AWA, and amazingly, um, didn't hurt more people than people think that he would have. I'm talking about your impressions of the Stone Mountain from Georgia. Jerry Blackwell. Um, <clears throat> I worked Jerry one time. That was in Omaha. Uh, it was a tag. It was myself and Rick Renslow against him and Greg. Snooka was a no-show with Greg, so Jerry came in. Jerry had a bad ankle that time, so he really couldn't do much, but <clears throat> he was very good. But I'm... Um, I'll tell you a, a story about Jerry. Jerry was probably one of the most athletic big men ever. He uh, he had a feud with Crusher, and I was refereeing um, a match in Green Bay, and I think they had a brass knuckles match or tape fist or whatever. Yeah. And we're walking back to the dressing room after, <clears throat> and some guy came up from behind and hit Jerry in the head. And... Uh, so the guy tried taking off, but we used to have the Brown County sheriffs escort us. And I told the sheriff, that's the guy right there. So they brought the guy 
back in the dressing room and, and Jerry was fuming because the guy, I don't know if he hit him with his camera or what. They brought him back in there and uh, Eric goes, here he is. Here's the guy. And Jerry said, UMF. And the guy fainted. <laughs> Just fainted right on the spot. And, and, <laughs> and he walked away because it, it, Jerry would have killed him. And uh, just then they picked the guy up and then they, they you know, <laughs> but it was just like, holy cow. He just wilted. And uh, he's a man that you never wanted to mess with. Nice guy. Stone and I actually stayed at his apartment one time in Minneapolis. He was um, in Denver or he was, he was Chicago or something. So it was a Saturday after we taped. Stone, he let Stone and I stay there because Stone had a house show the next day and at the Minneapolis Auditorium or whatever. And um, he had a TV in every room, bathroom, the whole deal. And uh, great guy, was always nice to us. Um, so, but don't cross him because if you did, um, <laughs> it wouldn't be good. Jerry Blackwell, I, I remember watching Jerry, and this is again in the days when he was a hated heel. And the Minneapolis Auditorium or Civic Center, somebody would give him giving him the raspberries, and he would walk right up, you know, maybe a third of the way into the seats and go nose to nose with people. I mean, he was absolutely, I mean, fearless, and and no question about it. But again, uh, away from the ring, you know, the 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 Southern gentlemen, what have mm -hmm. you. Um, last question before we uh, before we talk about your book. Uh, what was your relationship like with the the head of honchos back in the day, Vern Gagne and Wally Carble? Um, Vern, um, I, I had the utmost respect for him um, because I thought he was like the king of wrestling. He was, like I said, when I first met Vern, it was like meeting the president and um Never had a problem with him. Um, like I said, if, if he liked you, and I wrestled for for the AWA for 10 years, um, I just, you know, he, I, I wish I could have wrestled Vern on TV. It would have been great. I, He's one of the kind of like one of the things that if I had a wish, I, I could have wrestled him. And I wouldn't have got any heat. I would have just wanted to use wrestling holds and moves and escapes because I think he would have really he likes that kind of stuff especially if you know what the hell you're doing because you had to when you wrestled you know up there um Wally Wally was a character Wally was kind of like a used car salesman I mean he just <laughs> he just uh he'd look at you and, and he'd be BSing you and you know he was but one thing um Wally would, you know, he would call me, um, or what he would do is he'd go through Stone and say, hey, get, you know, these guys for, for TV, and um, or he would call Stone and say, hey, can you get Curtis for, you know, uh, we need him in St. Paul, or Wally would call me, hey, can you get to St. Paul? One thing I never did, in all my 10 years, and I'm really proud of this, I never said no once. If the office called me, not one time did I ever turn them down to come and do a house show, referee, or do TV. So, yeah, it's 
Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just something that, um, I just, uh, and, and, and I think about that and, and how it used to be with those, with all those legends and all those guys. And it's just like, wow, I'm, I was just so proud, um, to be part of that organization that I grew up watching, you know, and it's just, uh, it's just the greatest thing. Well, Chris, I know with all of the stories and your experiences that uh, uh, you became an author and that you have a bunch of these stories and stories about your career in a book. So back in the day, I used to direct the uh, the interviews in the AWA studio. So I'm going to count you down into a three, two, one and cue you. Let's get a promo. Let's tell us a little bit about the book and where fans can get it ordered. You ready? Three, two, one. All right. Let me tell you something right now, which is the usual line. You see the job, man. I am the job, man. I am the job, man persona. That's me raking Lorenzo C's eyes at the amphitheater in Chicago. I am tell you right now i'm telling you you get this book it's the greatest book wrestling book ever written by the job man um the best part about it is there's no dirty laundry it's all great stories about your favorite stars and of course your favorite job man and that's me he may be an apprentice author, but he's a seasoned uh, ring veteran. I'm telling you. Curtis and the job man. Wow. <laughs> that that was that was great. That was absolutely great. One take, one take, Curtis. Look at that. I like that. <laughs> uh I I just, you know, in conclusion here, pal, um th this is coming from my heart. This has been such a great hour plus for me. Uh, listening to your stories, you brought me back. You brought me back to the TV studio. Um, you brought me back to arguably the greatest roster the AWA ever had uh, back in the day. Uh, you brought me back to a time when it was professional wrestling, when uh, it wasn't sports entertainment. And I, I, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your honesty. I, I admire what you said about accepting your position in the business that you knew what it was and whether they were giving you a minute, two minutes, 10 minutes, you went out there and you gave it 150%. Uh, always a credit to wrestling. Uh, it's from a bygone era, a better time, better place. And uh, I just want to thank you. Sincerely, I really have enjoyed this interview. Well, thank you very much. I, I, this was just, I think this is awesome. You guys inviting me like this and, and I love it. And I, I do it again, you know, anytime. And, and you guys are really a credit. I love the, I love your podcasts. I, I listen to them all the time. It's just super. Thank you so much. Thank you. Chris. Really appreciate Thank it. you, Chris. I still think you made a mistake by, you know, not going for the 50 grand, but you know, your standards between Billy Robinson and Mad Dog. Yeah. Well, you get a broken back and you get a couple of teeth marks. Fifty thousand right? dollars. Well, exactly. let's see that the fifty grand's gonna pay for the doctor bill. There it is. There it is. Right? Chris, that was just great. Thank you, my friend. Really appreciate it.
Well, thank you guys. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too. All right. Uh, we'll put him uh, backstage. We'll hook up with him again uh, after we're, we're done here. It was a great conversation here, guys. Uh, like, I, I mean, I knew we were going to get some really good information and some really good stories, but uh, the, the mad dog, Billy Robinson, when, when you're willingly going over to the crusher and that's the lesser of the three evils, I mean, that's that kind of tells me all you need to know about where he was at. I love that. Crusher says, where do you want to go? And, and He's like, now, please. Says, right now? <laughs> great stuff. Oh, great, man. Great so, stuff. so many great, so many great stories. And by the way, yeah, you guys, if you want to read the stories, and now that you've heard them firsthand and you want to read the stories, I'm going to put the I'm going to put the book back up there, guys. And uh, we're going to go uh, a full screen. Yes. So uh, there it is. Job man. You know, look, Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble. I don't even, you know, I assume that's still a thing, but just Google it. Uh, check it out. I'm sure you can get it. You know, Amazon. So, yeah. There's job. A, there's a forward by Baron Von Roschke. Oh, look at that. I, I didn't even. Oh, man. See, I don't know. That's so many good things in there and if you guys enjoyed the interview like i know we did we thoroughly enjoyed it and i'm so glad that we were able to to make it work let's uh give some shout outs uh take care of some business and then we'll we'll take it home as as the kids say i think that's a term in wrestling it's what i see on the internet so it's got to be true oh um, you know, we I, the internet. we've already had that conversation no. mick so uh let's yeah. uh, let's go with you with the shout outs and then we'll then we'll bring her home a friend of mine for 50 years, uh, Bruce Buckstein, uh, Bruce in Maple Grove, Minnesota. He was the guy that I went to the TV studios with each and every week in the 1960s into the early 70s. It was Bruce and I that were chased onto 6th Street by Mad Dog Vachon when the dog thought that we were playing with the elevator buttons at the Dykeman Hotel. Uh, Bruce Buckstein, a great, great fan, a friend. Great wrestling fan of the shout out to Bruce. Well, you've known him for 50 years. I've known my shout out for 58 years, but it's easy to do because I'm going to give a shout out to uh, a new listener finally, and that's my brother, Jack Chupik. Wow. What took him so long? Yeah. Well, yeah. Really? What, what took him? I mean, you couldn't have like asked him to. I mean, he's, why, not why on, now? he's not on social media, blah, oh, blah, okay. blah. Just, you know, it's family. Okay. Yeah, you know. I, I get it. Yeah. Joe Chupik, all about the nepotism here. <laughs> I'm going to go to somebody I've never met. I do not know. I don't even know their real name. But all I know, what? It's it's a gimmick name. You can see it across the screen. You see that? S-C-O-H-840. I have no idea who that is, but they're... Very active on our YouTube channel, so I love it. Uh, go ahead, and then I have no idea what their real name is. I don't even care what their real name is. Their gimmick name on YouTube is SCOH840. And hey, thanks for leaving comments, you guys. We love all the interaction, even if we don't respond to everything. We do see them, and we try and get to them, and we will get to them uh, all in due time. So. Guys, this was fun. Uh, thanks, 7th Avenue Pizza and Soda Stick for uh, for helping make this thing go. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, please do all that uh, fun stuff. And I think uh, I think we're done. Thank you, Chris Curtis. Great show. And, and you're right, Chupik's all about the nepotism. Well, it was great to have Chris Curtis as a jobber. 
Um, it, it was nice to have another jobber. I mean, we, we, Chris Curtis, you know, the Tom Stones of the world, but we've got Mick Karch, the jobbers of AWA announcers. Okay. 